So good to be here with you today. Excuse my munching. I just had a mint in my mouth, and I'm like, okay, I can't keep this thing in my mouth while I preach, so I got to crunch it up real quick. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's so good to be here with you today. Just a quick reminder before we dive into the Word today. If you are new here today and you haven't filled out that Connect card yet, stop what you're doing right now and fill it out. We just want to not miss that opportunity to connect with you. Also, you should have received a little pamphlet today that we call our Go Deep Guide. If you got one of those, wave it up in the air so I can see you have it. All right. If you didn't receive one of those, can you just lift your hand up real quick? Because we got extra for all of you that didn't get one. There's one right there. Anybody else? Awesome. And so for those of you that don't know what the Go Deep Guide is, it's something that you can use for multiple ways. Uh, on the front page, there's uh, blank spaces so that you can jot down some notes. We believe that every time we gather together, God has a word for you. And if God has a word for you, we don't want you to forget it. So write down what you hear him speaking to you. Also, if you follow along, you will see the main points of the message in bold letters, and that can kind of help you track along with the message. But also included in there are some questions that we hope you will take home with you um, and make a part of your daily time with the Lord as you dig deeper and journal about what it is that he's speaking into your life. And so please follow along with those. These are also what we use as our guides to lead our discussion in our life groups. If you're not connected in a group yet, uh, reach out to us, maybe through email, and we will connect you with a group. All right. Well, I brought uh, something here with me today to start us off with, and I wanted to show you one of my little stupid human tricks. Okay. All right. So I remember I learned this as a kid because, you know, I, I grew up in a trailer park with, you know, not a lot of money. And, um, and so I had to come up with my own toys. Anybody like grow up like in the sticks and you had to come up with your own toys, right? There's nothing wrong with that. We had imagination to keep us busy, right? We weren't always on a Nintendo uh, playing video games. And so I would keep myself entertained with a wooden dowel. My mom was always into like crafting and um, sewing and things like that. So she would have these lying around the house all the time. And so I would take one and here's what I what I'd do. You ready? Is anybody impressed? Okay. Now one thing I've noticed about this is as I try to balance this wooden dowel, as long as I keep my eyes on it, it's relatively easy. Um, I have to stay focused. And I have to move, right? I'm not perfectly steady, but I'm keeping my eyes on it. It's helping me balance it. But something happens if I try to look away from it and keep balancing it, right? Okay, almost lost it there. When I take my eyes and my focus off of this thing I'm trying to keep balanced, suddenly it becomes more difficult. And it's only a matter of time before it falls again. And what was once upright is now possibly on its side or upside down again. If you were here last week, uh, we started the series off with a message called Upside Down. Because here's what happened. I told a story about crashing my dirt bike, remember? And, and Doug, who's here with us for the first time today, he knows about engines. We were talking about fuel backing up and stuff. Well, what do you think happened? I, I wrecked on my motorcycle and it sat upside down for a while. What do you think happened when I tried to start it? Didn't start, did it? right? And that's what happens because it wasn't meant to function upside down. Did you know that we're not meant to function upside down either? 
In fact, in a very literal sense, if you hang upside down too long, it leads to medical complications. Your heart and your organs were designed to function while right side up. And so if you were to hang upside down for an extended period of time, it could lead to things like heart failure, uh, brain hemorrhages, all sorts of terrible things can happen if you hang upside down too long. Not surprising since we weren't created to be upside down. Well, there's a spiritual relation to this as well, that um, because Satan uh, rebelled against God, there was a mutiny in heaven. He was cast down to the earth. And as a result, everything on the earth was flipped upside down. Well, today we're going to spend some time talking more about how to stay right side up. If you want to follow along with me in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 9, first, there's a quick verse I want to share in chapter 9, and it says, uh, in verse 51, it says, as the time drew near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely, somebody say resolutely, set out for Jerusalem. And so since time was short, uh, the time that he was going to ascend and leave, Right? I think it's interesting that Luke says that instead of like, since the time for his death was nearing. But no, he says since the time of his ascension. And, and uh, uh, maybe there's something to that, that uh, if you're thinking about your death and you're overwhelmed with anxiety for that, um, maybe you uh, respond to that in a different way. But here it says that Jesus was focused on his ascension. It was more about um, his magnification and him leaving us and messages that he wanted us to receive before he left rather than I'm about to die and so I need to react out of that emotion, if that makes any sense. And so because time is short, Jesus had to have his mind firmly focused on the mission. And that's where that word resolutely comes out and really stands out there. That, that, that Luke was trying to communicate something about Jesus's attitude during this time. That in the context of the end being near and the time for his transition into glory happening, the time that he'd be leaving the earth and no longer walking face to face and teaching people eyeball to eyeball, with that in mind, his response to be, was to be intently focused, balanced, and intentional. And it is this resolve that he intends to communicate to his followers as well. They needed to have that same type of focus, otherwise they could easily become unbalanced. Jesus was more aware than any of us could ever possibly be that there is a real enemy called Satan or the devil, he is the accuser that looks to trip us up, looks to cause us to become unbalanced. And so it's not like, okay, I was upside down and I met Jesus Christ and I'm right side up again and the devil leaves me alone. How many of you know that we live in a spiritual world and there's warfare going on? And so if we don't do what it takes to maintain our uprightness, then we will be knocked off balance. And so he had just, uh, um, Luke had just told us about how he was just resolutely determined to go to the next place and to uh, fulfill his mission. And in that context, someone from the crowd in verse 61 here says, yes, Lord, I will follow you. And so he's responded to Jesus's invitation, but he has um, a condition. He says, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow 
and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. What happens when we put our hand to something, but we're not watching where we're going? He says, we're not, they're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so if you keep reading on, you flip the page, you go to chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples. And it says here, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs, which I think is significant that he chose 72 others. Uh, we put so much focus on the 12 that at times I think we sub subconsciously adopted this idea that the ministry of the gospel is for the elite and for the professionals. Only for those that walked hand in hand with Jesus closely but no, he said, this mission is so much bigger than the 12 that now I'm going to send out 72. And we know that he extended his great commission to the entire church. Why? Because it's a worldwide mission. It's going to take a churchwide effort. So he sends out the 72 ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. I've talked about that a lot, haven't I? We act like the harvest is few, right? There's plenty of workers, but nobody wants to hear about the gospel. But what Jesus says is there's a harvest, and if there's a harvest, that means it's ripe for the picking. So he's saying there are people there today that are ready to meet Jesus. We just need workers to bring them the good news. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers. Not ask them, not ask him to move upon the hearts of the lost, but to send more workers. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money. Listen to the urgency in these instructions. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. What's up with that? Like, is there something wrong with greeting people um, while you're on the road? Of, of course not. not, not in every context, but in this, in this context, apparently there was because there was an urgency to it. He, he'd given them this task uh, to balance and to see through to the end, and he knew that time was short. Oh, and if, if time was wasted or if there was a distraction then they would fumble the ball and they wouldn't be able to follow through on the mission that he gave them to accomplish. This was necessary to their success. We too have been given a mission, church. But there seems to be a lack of urgency and focus within the church that is causing many of us to be off balance and unable to walk it out. It's difficult to even remain right side up, let alone be effective in the mission. Why? Because we're letting other things pull on us. We're letting other things distract us. We're letting other things keep us occupied. Sometimes they're obviously sinful, and sometimes they only become sinful when they've been exalted to a point above Christ. So let's take a few moments before we dig into the scriptures further. At your tables, I want you to simply discuss this topic. What are some things that you see Christians engaging in today that might be keeping them off balance? 
and making them ineffective in carrying out God's purpose for their life. So let's discuss that at our tables for six minutes, and then we'll get right back into the Word of God. All right. I know those six minutes fly by super fast, but if you find yourself sitting at a table this morning and you're like, that wasn't long enough, I need more of this in my life, you need a life group, okay? So if you're not plugged into a life group, please reach out to me. Um, There's also, uh, uh, we do Rooted throughout the year, multiple times a year, and that's a great way to get plugged into community. And so, uh, you know, shameless plug right there. All right, skip ahead. I got out of order and already said some of this stuff. Okay. This is the passage. I'll share this with you real quick. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 9. This is the passage uh, that we're kind of hanging this whole series on. It says, uh, it is talking about Jesus. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And so I want to point out here in verse 8 that he humbled himself in obedience to God, though he was God. This is something that it can be really confusing and hard for us to wrap our brains around, right? Because it's this doctrine of the Trinity that God is one, and yet he exists in three persons. And it's one of those things that we can never fully comprehend because there's no exact example of it in um, uh, observable uh, physical reality. And yet the Bible is clear on the truth of it. And of course we can't fully understand and comprehend the God of the universe that spoke everything into existence. But what, what is significant about this is though he was God, he turned his back on those divine privileges And let's remember that he came not just to accomplish a mission, not just to die for our sins so that we could be saved, but he came also to set an example. And so when we look at the way he lived his life, there are applicational takeaways for us. And so last week we talked about how our life can be flipped upside down by exalting things above Jesus in our own hearts. Today we discuss how we can ensure that he remains exalted so that we can remain right side up. And that's the title of today's message. Last week we talked about the Lord's Supper and we took uh, communion together in a new and fresh way here that I think was really significant for us all. But following that meal with his disciples, there was a moment where Jesus traveled with his friends to a garden called Gethsemane. And as he approached the garden, the weight and the reality of what he was about to face became heavier and heavier. Because let us not forget that not only was he fully God, but he was fully man. And so we're going to pick this story up in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Read along with me either on the screens or in your own Bibles Starting in verse 36 here, it says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. One of those prayers that I think some of us are afraid to pray. Then he returned to his disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. For they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time. Somebody say three times. <laughs> saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Father, I pray that you would just illuminate your scriptures to us, Lord, as we often state, Father God, that this Bible is your word. And we know that when we read it and live it out in obedience, we will be transformed into who you created us to be. We will become everything it says that we are. So, Father, let us receive your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. The time has come, he announced. I want to remind us this morning that there is a clock. And the clock is ticking down. And there's going to be a moment where the time has come. And we must live our lives with the urgency that we are on the clock Today, I want to give you four ways that you can keep your balance so that you can remain right side up. Keep your balance this morning. Going back to verse 38, Jesus approaches this place of prayer and he confides in his friends. I want you to think about that. <clears throat> Jesus, the Savior of the world, confided in his friends and he admits the raw emotion that he's wrestling with, he says, my soul is crushed with grief. Grief. I'm thinking of the word Greek because I looked it up, right? This is showing his humanity, and I think that's important for us. I think sometimes we want to only see Jesus in his divinity because it seems sometimes blasphemous to think of him as a man. And so we only want to think of him in his fully glorified state. But when we do that, we rob the, the significance of what he did, knowing that he overcame as man. He defeated Satan. He defeated temptation, uh, which you can't defeat temptation if you don't actually experience temptation. And to know that he experiences what we experience, that, that term crushed with grief means to be engulfed in grief, in grief. To, to be surrounded by it, to feel like it's weighing you down. And, and what he say? He said, to the point of death. 
Is there any greater fear or sorrow to the human soul than death? You know, you could get spiritual and say, well, yeah, the second death, right? A spiritual death, eternity and separation from God. Absolutely. But let's be honest. Um, I think most of us can't fully comprehend that. I don't think any of us can comprehend what that would actually be like. And so to most of us, just death is the ultimate fear. And, and you say, well, no, not me, because I'm saved. I know where I'm going. I get that. I get that. But I'll tell you this. I was in a place where I thought I was going to die. I've told the story before, so I won't retell the whole story. Um, but I thought I was going to drown. I was in the middle of a lake, and I had nothing left. I felt like I had no fight left to keep myself afloat anymore and the waters were disturbed and I was choking on water, inhaling water and it, it seemed like it was only a matter of time. I thought that my uh, fate was set in stone and the, the feeling that came over me was something I've never experienced since then. A feeling of heaviness, a, a feeling of finality and um, I think you know how that story ended, right? Because I'm still here. Like you're not like... One of the kids that'll be like, did you die? Right? <laughs> but that's the closest I ever came to death. At least in a circumstance where I realized how close I was to death and felt the weight of it. And that would have been a much more easy death to reconcile than what Jesus knew he was about to face. So he goes to pray and he says, stay here and keep watch with me. And what I love about this is Jesus demonstrates a need for community, but yet an even greater trust in his Father. I think this is so important for us today as a church, that we value community and relationships, but never above our relationship with the Father. That we never bring ourselves to a place where we are leaning almost solely on other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll tell you this, oftentimes, you know, I just spoke a message and I had a few people approach me actually and say, hey, I've entered into a mentoring relationship, which is really exciting. But I'll tell you this, any mentor that is worth their weight in salt or worth their salt will want you to become more and more dependent upon Christ and less and less dependent upon them. And so this is something that Jesus understood. There was a need for his friends, and that's why he brought them along and said, keep watch with me. But ultimately, he went on a little bit further because his trust was in the Lord. His, his trust was in the Father. See, friends can only take you so far, and that's number one, by the way, trust. The way you keep yourself upright, the way you keep yourself balanced is you must trust, specifically trust the Father. Friends can only take you so far. And if you want to keep your balance, you've got to trust in God to take you further. I think it sounds normal. Have you ever said something like this to someone you're really close to? I don't know how I'd make it without you. I say that to my wife all the time. But in reality, I should never say that again. Because every Christian should know exactly how they'd make it without you. Exactly who they'd turn to and how they'd turn to him. They, they, they should know exactly that the, the next thing to do is if they feel abandoned and all alone or that their own friends have turned their back on them, which is exactly what Jesus was about to experience, then the next move is to hit my knees in prayer and go to the Father. 
Because although I was created for community and I need people in my life, until I find the community I need, he will be my community and he will sustain me. He will see me through to the end. He will do what friends cannot do. So we can actually become upside down by exalting good godly people in our lives and putting them on a pedestal. The very fact that every time we hear of a celebrity preacher having a moral fall, that it causes God's people to scatter, it causes people to have church hurt and never come back, is a sign right there that it was not Jesus that was exalted in their life as the name above all names. Sorry, I'm really struggling with this thing. The clip fell off, so please forgive me for fidgeting with it. If you want this level of trust, though, you also have to have that level of intimacy. Trust doesn't just come because we make a choice to trust. That's how it starts, but it grows only through intimacy. And we know that Jesus was very intimate with the Father. And it's not simply because he is the Father's son, but it's because we read how he often went away to be by himself and be in prayer with the Father. And out of that intimacy came a wonderful trust that gave him the ability to perform miracles. In verse 39, he begins to pray, and it, and it shares with us what he says. He says, my father, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, if it's all possible, right? But then he says, yet I want your will to be done. The second thing we learn from Jesus is not only must we trust, but we must submit. We must submit. What, what I find amazing about this is with the knowledge of what was about to happen to Jesus, how he could even pray that prayer. Oh, was it difficult to, to, to say those words out loud with, with almost this feeling, if I say it out loud, I'm cementing it into existence, right? If I say it out loud, then somehow I know that my spirit's gonna have to come in agreement with this truth, right? I can't deny it anymore. How difficult it must have been to pray that prayer. This is about the time that many of us would start complaining. God, why me? Or the age-old question, why do good things happen to good, or why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever stopped to think what a ridiculous question that is in the context of what happened to Jesus? All things work together for good, Pastor Joe. Oh, that's just platitudes. Don't say that. I don't need to hear that right now. Or God's going to bring something good of what the enemy meant for evil, right? And, and, and we're unable to receive that sometimes. Why? Because we forget what Jesus did. If there's any example of bad things happening to a good and innocent person, which, by the way, he's the only innocent person that anything bad has ever happened to in the history of humanity. You're not innocent. I'm not innocent. I deserve the bad things that happened to me and worse. But Jesus deserved none of it. And do you think anything good came out of that bad thing that happened to him? How about the salvation of the world? How about the reason why we gather here today on a Sunday morning? Because God brought the ultimate good out of the worst work of evil and iniquity ever witnessed by mankind. How good is God this morning? It's for this very reason 
that God doesn't always make us aware of what lies ahead because we're not submitted to his will. Most of us are not surrendered enough to the Father to even handle that information, let alone get through it. There are things that I believe that the Father desires to reveal to us, but he can't because we're not submitted. Have you ever been praying for clarity? God, why is this happening? Or God, what's next? What am I supposed to do? And you just feel like all you're hearing is crickets? Maybe it's because first you have to submit. Say, God, not my will, but your will be done. God reveals his plan to those who will submit to it. I remember I told this story also, so I'll tell you the short version. <laughs> I don't want to become that pastor that tells the same stories, right? But it was the first time I went rappelling off the edge of a cliff. Anybody ever done that? Super fun and terrifying the first time you do it. And one of the hardest things is for people to lean back. And so I saw the people that go before me and they would not step out and lean back. They would just try to like climb their way down. And as a result, they're banging their knees against the rocks and they're getting skinned up and they're slipping and sliding and they're terrified. Well, I learned from that part and I said, okay, when I do it, I'm gonna lean back. So I did, I leaned back, terrifying, but I am white knuckling that rope with everything that I have and just letting myself go inch by inch. Well, suddenly, very suddenly, fatigue set in. And I got to the point where my arms were on fire and I felt like, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose this rope and I'm gonna tumble to my death. And people are gonna say, wow, what a tragic thing that happened to this pastor. <laughs> and what I realized is the more fatigued I got, the more I loosened my grip. But you know what didn't happen? I didn't fall. And so through that struggle, through that point of exhaustion, I realized that all it took was fingertip pressure to keep me from falling. And so in reality, there was only one way out, and that was down, first of all. There was no going back up again. And secondly, because I was striving in my own strength, trying to will myself down the mountain, I didn't realize all I needed to do was lean back and trust the equipment. I needed to submit to gravity and let gravity do its work while trusting in the commitment. Do you see how trust and submission go hand in hand? Just like gravity and the reliance on that equipment was gonna get me to where I needed to go. In life, you're gonna face things that you can only overcome through submission. You're gonna face things that you can only overcome by submitting to God's will for your life even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense, even when it's not glamorous, even when it's not the path you would have taken. Thirdly, we have to watch. Jesus turned to his disciples and he told them to watch and pray, but in verse 40 it says that he returned and he found them sleeping. Here's something that stuck out to me here. Jesus returned to them with a purpose. Do you think he returned to them just to see if they were sleeping still? That's how I used to read it. Like he went to go check on them. You better not be sleeping. I told you to watch and pray. I don't think so now. So I was studying this. I believe he came back to them for a reason though. 
Certainly there was an exchange that he expected to take place. And it made me think, what would he have said to them if he found them awake? What more could he have spoken into their lives? What more insight could he have given them if they were awake? Surely we can agree on this. If he came back and they were still awake and still keeping watch and still keeping praying, he wouldn't have told them to wake up. Why do I point that out? Because it is the watchful that hear his voice. It is the watchful that receive direction from him. I'm sure there were other things he would have discussed with them, but guess what? You cannot hear God speaking into your life when you're asleep. God cannot speak into any area of your life until you first respond to his call to wake up. And some of you are like, why can't I hear God? Why can't I see what he's doing? Because you still haven't even responded to the alarm clock that's going off in your spirit. You're hitting the snooze button and then you're asking why. Why am I going nowhere? Why am I not seeing God move in my life? To keep watch is to position yourself to hear God's voice. So he says to them, keep watch and pray so that, why? What did he say? So that you won't what? Yep, so you won't get tempted, so you won't give in to temptation. What Jesus is teaching is that when we're not alert, we're vulnerable. And in fact, very likely to give in to temptation because we're not awake. So he says something profound here. And you guys know this scripture. He says, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. How many of you, be honest, you say you've used that scripture as an excuse before? Like, I keep fumbling over the same thing over and over again. Well, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so uh, as long as I have flesh, I'm weak. And so I'm going to keep failing. Is that what Jesus was communicating here? That, hey, 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 I understand why you're asleep, disciples, because your body's weak. No. He's saying, this is why you must watch. This is why you must pray, because the body is weak. The flesh is a liability. The body is our weakness. And if that's true, then surely it matters how we discipline it. Even down to, are we exercising? What are we putting into our bodies? What are we feeding ourselves? How are we disciplining our body? What are we exposing it to? What are we taking in that alters our judgment? Sin is the result of decisions made while asleep. Let me put it this way. Sin is the result of decisions made while disconnected from reality. If you've ever battled with an addiction or a repeated sin in your life, you give in to the temptation when you have disconnected from the reality of those consequences. Where you're able to drown out the voice and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where you've rationalized and said, I haven't done this in a long time, or I deserve this, or if you had been through what I'd been through, you would have done the same thing. And what we're doing is we're removing ourselves from the reality of the consequences of that decision.
So if that's the case, then partaking in anything that compromises your judgment is at the very least unwise and at the worst a grave mistake, a sin. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so Peter did not mince words here. He didn't say, hey, a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl should be sober-minded so you can set a good example. He laid it all out here. The goal of this verse is to reconnect us with reality. That sin is out to completely destroy you like a roaring lion just looking for someone who's asleep, looking for someone who's disconnected from reality, looking for someone who's weak. Why? So he can steal your food? No, so he can make you his meal. That is why we must be sober-minded. And so here's the deal. I believe that this verse has both figurative and literal applications. Sober-minded, it's so easy for us to just translate that as, okay, it's not talking about alcohol or drugs. It's, it's talking about, you know, just being alert of what's going on. Well, guess what happens when you take alcohol or drugs, people? It impairs your judgment. You can't be sober-minded if you're not even sober. Okay. Anything that causes you... I need a handheld mic. This is too important to be distracted by technology. Let me just unplug real quick. This is distracting, I realize that, but it's short-lived and it's gonna make for a better rest of the day. All right. Anything that causes you to retreat from reality can prevent you from being sober-minded. So let's talk about the obvious. Let's talk about alcohol. Everything in moderation, right? Right? Jesus drank wine, right? It was wine and communion, you know. There's debates on how alcoholic it was, right, versus the wine that we have today and things like that. I don't even need to get into that. Everything in moderation. I'll tell you this. I, first of all, I am 100% opposed to the consumption of alcohol. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And I don't shy away from that. I'm not ashamed of that. I don't condemn you for doing it. I'm not legalist, Okay. But I'll tell you why I'm 100% against it. First of all, the culture that we live in in the United States of America is an indulging culture. And everything we treat, we treat with excess in mind. It's, in our, it's embedded in our culture. So when we, we talk about wine and alcohol and things like that in the United States, it's much different than some experiences overseas. But that's the first thing. Everything in moderation, right? Well, here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that when you drink, suddenly your definition of moderation can change and be altered? You have one, and you're like, what's wrong with another? And you have two, and you say, what's wrong with another? So listen, I'm not saying that some of you don't enjoy wine with your dinner or something in moderation. But I'm telling you this, this morning that I strongly advise against it. And I challenge you to pray 
and see if God might be challenging you to rid your home of it. What happens when you, the person who drinks in moderation, suffers a tragedy in your life? Or something terrible happened at work and you're overwhelmed with stress and you come home and you know that your fridge is always stocked with that substance. Can you honestly tell me there's never a chance that you might drink in excess? And in that moment when you drink in excess, is there a chance you'll do something really stupid and boneheaded that could have lifelong consequences? So I feel, I feel very strongly about this, but know that I love you and receive you and I do not judge you. But if you hear frustration in my voice, it's because I'm sick and tired of seeing godly men crumble and their marriages fall apart and abuse take place in the home and, and people who uh, otherwise in other areas of their life are functioning and, and being fruitful in the kingdom of God, but alcohol was introduced and it destroyed their relationships. That's how I personally feel. It's up to you whether you make that your conviction or not. But I have to speak from what I've seen and what I know from experience. So we, we know that we should not get behind the wheel while under the influence, right? We know not to operate heavy machinery while under the influence. But do we mold and shape the minds of our children under the influence? Do we lead our wives spiritually under the influence? Do we share Jesus under the influence? Are we ready in season and out of season if at any moment I might be under the influence? Are we always prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have? Now, there is a marijuana dispensary on every corner. There's more of those than there are Starbucks, I think. I don't know. You might have to fact check that. It's legal now. Pastor, it's okay to partake in it because it's natural. It grows in the ground. Just because something grows in the earth doesn't mean it was intended to be consumed. You know what else grows in the earth? Poison ivy. And I don't see you putting that in your pipe and smoking it or baking it into your brownies either. We're called to be sober-minded. Meaning anything that we put into our body that alters our judgment, it's just not worth it. It's not worth the risk. It's, it's like a mouse trap. Sometimes the mouse actually gets the cheese. But the next time he's more comfortable with it and he's more confident with it. And so he puts a little more uh, aggression into it and snap, he's gone. All right. So those are the easy things, actually. Now we're going to talk about entertainment. Something that is self-convicting for me because I have been the victim of Ben watching multiple times in my life. And there's, I go through seasons where I feel like I've got to have something on in the background constantly. Is there anything wrong with watching a show? No. Is there anything wrong with watching a movie? No. But what happens when it's movies, shows, sports, video games, social media, that I waste so much time while reality passes me by? where I'm not engaged with my children because I'm glued to a device, when I'm not interacting with my spouse because I'm glued to a device. And not only let's talk about the content of some of that entertainment. Have you ever noticed that TV 14 doesn't mean what it used to? And what happens is we open up doors that used to be closed. 
Why? Because in order to enjoy what I like about secular entertainment, I have to also invite these other things in. The options are becoming less and less and less. And that's how the enemy works. He slowly comes in and he takes territory one little piece, little, one little piece at a time. All right, I spent way too much time on this, but I hope you guys received it. Sometimes it's ambition. Sometimes we put in extra hours to get ahead and we miss our children growing up. We neglect our spouses because we're just trying to, we think we're just trying to make ends meet, but I'll tell you this, God honors your faithfulness. When you, when you live a life of balance, he honors that. He blesses that. Don't tell me you have to work 80 hours a week just to pay the bills. Heck, if that's the case and you make a decision to step back so you can be there for your family and you can't pay the bills, the church is here. We're not going to let you end up on the street. You climb the corporate ladder, but you offer your leftovers to the kingdom of God. If it doesn't cost me too much, if I'm not busy, I'll be there, Pastor. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The church needs to wake up to the reality that you are not in a club, but you have been enlisted into an army. And your aim is to please him. And any time that is not your aim, you have idols in your life. Suddenly he is not exalted. Suddenly you have entered into the upside down. And guess what? Who rules the upside down? Satan. You've entered into his domain and he's in control. Finally, number four is this. Pray. You have to be alert to effectively pray and you have to pray to remain alert. This is a continual ongoing practice and discipline. It's not a list of requests. So there's two qualities to Jesus's prayer here that I want to point out, and I'll close with this this morning. That, we, that also must characterize our prayers. Number one is this, or I have it letter A on my notes. When you pray, there must be an exchange. There must be an exchange. That means both, the, it's a two-way conversation, right? How many of you will be honest and say, my prayers are just me blabbing, and when I stop talking, I stop praying. There has to be an exchange. As you look at this word for prayer in the Greek, uh, I use the helps word study as a resource, and it breaks it down as this, that the, the first part of this word, prose, means towards or exchange, and then the second part of it means to wish or to pray. And so what this means is to exchange wishes or to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes or ideas for his wishes as he imparts faith. The kind of prayer that God wants us is an interaction that leads in, exchanging, leads in us exchanging our will for his. As we make this type of prayer an ongoing practice, it doesn't just produce results over whatever we are praying for. It produces a change within us. When you pray, is it an ongoing interaction? When you step away from your prayer closet, has there been an exchange that has taken place? So we see in, in verse 42 that Jesus comes right and he finds them asleep. But what does he do? It says he left them a second time and he prayed. What did he pray? The same thing. Letter B is this. There must be consistency. There must be consistency, and I want to invite the worship team to come up with that.
Why did Jesus repeat himself? Remember, this is the same guy that said, when you pray, don't babble on and on with useless repetitions like, like the pagans do or the hypocrites do because they're, they're, like they're trying to gain favor from God and get him to listen. So did Jesus repeat himself here to get God's, the Father's attention? Uh, did, did, did the Father not hear his prayer the first time? Or perhaps the repeating of the prayer was not for the sake of the Father, but for the sake of Jesus. I believe that this repeating of the prayer three times in total was for his benefit. I believe that each time he knelt in prayer, there was another exchange that took place. I would love to say that all it takes is for me to hit my knees once in prayer and everything is given to him. And I never keep anything with me. But how many of you know sometimes it happens in bits and pieces? I believe that Jesus continued to repeat this prayer because each time he went away and prayed, there was another exchange that took place. He gave over a little more of his desire, and God replaced it with his desire. He gave over more of his anguish, and God replaced it with his peace. He, he gave over more to the Father of himself and, and, and these things that he's wrestling with, and God exchanged them for more direction, more peace, and more comfort in his life. So after he prays for the second time, we, he goes back and he finds them sleeping again. Which brings me to this question. What do you do when other Christians fail you? What do you do when your most trusted brothers and sisters in Christ are falling asleep on you? Do you become bitter? Do you say, I'm done with that stupid church? Nobody cares about me there anyway? Do you run away from God and say, like, God, if you were there, then why did you allow this person who's supposed to be a believer to treat me like this? But it says Jesus went away and prayed for a third time. Many of us would come and we'd find our friends asleep and we'd be like, thanks a lot, God, a lot of good that prayer did. But Jesus went away and he prayed for a third time. He acknowledged, I believe, in that moment that they were only men. And men will fail you. Women will fail you too. Don't make the tragic mistake of making judgments about God's character based on the actions of his followers. He is now, always was, and always will be higher than any of us who represent him. But the enemy uses this all the time to cause us to lose our balance. David treated me bad. He wouldn't play softball this time around and I'm deeply offended and, and so I'm gonna run off to another church where they appreciate softball more. It's a silly, silly example, but we allow the offenses given to us by fellow believers to drive us away not only to drive us away from God, but to drive us away from community. But if God designed this community for us, he doesn't suddenly excuse us from it. If you were hurt in community, I believe he wants to heal you in community. But if we don't have a direct connection to God and a trust that is higher than any person, the enemy will use people to turn you away from him, from God. Gotta skip some of this. 
Just give you a quick example. When I was a little boy, it's a long time ago, don't judge me. My older sister, Monica, who's sung on the worship team before, most of you guys know her, um, she would get mad at me and she'd say, I'm telling, whenever she said, I'm telling, I would quickly punch her in the stomach so she couldn't speak. But what I found is that she would still go to mom and she'd be like, mom, dad, and they'd be like, what happened? And after a while, they didn't even have to ask. They're like, did Joey punch you in the stomach again? But you know what she never did? She never stopped, stopped running to our father because I punched her in the stomach. And what if she did? The abuse probably would have continued. I would have learned to manipulate her and get what I want. She would never tell on me. And so my sins would never be exposed. Probably be a very different kid by now. But because she kept running to the father, it changed things. But she had to do it consistently until I stopped behaving that way. So finally, Jesus announces the time has come. The son of man is betrayed. My betrayer is here. Consider what he's now announcing here. When he says the time has come, everything that Jesus said would happen was about to happen. Everything that he explained to them that they did not want to believe, that Peter said, no way, I'll die before I let this happen. And he says, no, you're going to deny me three times. All that was about to take place. The point where the Bible says that the shepherd was struck down, the sheep scattered, all his disciples would abandon him. That was the time that had come. There is another time that is upon us. We are living in the last days. Don't fall into the temptation of, I've heard that preached my whole life and I'm 67 years old. Well, guess what? We are 67 more years closer to the last days. And what Jesus is communicating here is that when the time draws near, the nearer it comes, the more our intensity must be turned up. The more our focus must be turned up. Quit getting distracted by civilian affairs today because the time is approaching. There's an enemy that just like Judas operates under the cover of darkness and tries, when he arrives, will he find someone who's sober and alert? Or will he find someone under the influence? Or will he find someone caught up in civilian affairs? Will he find someone who has a consistent prayer life that involves a divine exchange or someone who only prays retroactively? Will he find you off balance or upside down because you've exalted other things? Or will he find you right side up with Jesus exalted as the name above all names? If you just bow your heads in prayer with me, we're going to close. I just want to quickly extend an invitation. If you are in the room today or watching online and you say, man, I am recognizing what you're saying, pastor. This is an upside down world and I'm living in it. I'm lost in it. Sin has control of my life. I realize now that I have a, a divine purpose and I'm not able to function in it because the weight of guilt is ruining me. Sin is controlling me. And you realize today you need the forgiveness of a savior and you wanna to turn to Jesus for your salvation today so that you can be in a right relationship with God. If that's you and you're in the room, just quickly lift up your hands so that those at your table can pray with you just real quick. Lift up that hand real quick. Amen. 
you're watching online, the Bible says that if you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that you'll be saved. If you confess your sins to him, you believe in your heart that he died for your sins and was risen from the dead, and you choose to live your life for him, you will be saved. So here's how I want to end for the rest of us in the room today. Can we just go around the table as the music plays? Maybe you've placed your trust in others and they've let you down and you've allowed the failures of people to define your view of God. Maybe you feel confused and stuck because you're not fully submitted to God's will. Now you realize that that part of your frustration is that you have been fighting against God. Maybe you've been engaging in some things that are causing you to fall asleep spiritually. Now you want to position yourself to hear from God again. You want to be sober-minded. Maybe there's things you need to stop partaking in again, things that need to be cut out of your life. Maybe your prayer life has been reduced to sporadic requests that you throw up to heaven. And now you realize that your prayers must be consistent and there needs to be an exchange of wishes and will. Would you take a moment to go around the table and share how the Holy Spirit wants you to respond to this message? And I simply want our table host to lead us in prayer, to give some things over to God, and to step up uh, to this challenge, to trust, to submit, to keep watch, and to pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and begin to share at our tables, and we'll close in prayer. In a moment, I'll come back and transition things.